Hi, I'm Chris Klink, and you're listening to my Writing Table Podcast. Today's guest is Jenny L. Walsh. Jenny is the author of historical novels like Becoming Bonnie and Side by Side. She also writes books for children, including a nonfiction series and historical novels as well. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you. Your book, Becoming Bonnie, is about Bonnie Lynn Parker's life before meeting the man who would change her life as she knew it. What was it about Bonnie Parker that inspired you? So Becoming Bonnie kind of came about in an organic fashion. My husband is a history buff, and we enjoy talking about history and watching different um, shows, nonfiction books, watching shows, all that fun stuff. And Bonnie and Clyde came up in topic one day, and I had this little ah moment where I was like, okay, that's kind of intriguing. Of course, I've seen the movie, the 1967 one, but it wasn't a topic that I ever really researched. And I'm someone who will hear something and then just go spend an hour on Google or sometimes more on Google. (laughs) So after our conversation, I was like, let me just Google, just see what I can find out. This is what I do. And I was really surprised by Bonnie in particular. Um, Clyde had a pretty rough existence from day one. And Bonnie had some moments as well. But when you looked at her big picture of who she was, she went to church on Sundays. She sang in the choir. She won a spelling bee. She got straight A's. And I was immediate like, whoa, how did this girl end up being an outlaw? And that is what pretty much sparked my interest. And then that interest kind of went crazy when I realized that um, there wasn't a book from her perspective. All of the TV shows and all of the movies and all of the nonfiction books too were primarily about both of them or they focused on Clyde. So I really saw this opportunity to tell Bonnie's story from her point of view, first person, present tense, and really bring it to life. So it became the story of how Bonnie meets Clyde. It's her story prior to him, leading up to him. And she had this whole life before him where she was married and family drama. So that's what all came to life in Becoming Bonnie. So she could have been any one of us and she just met the right bad boy. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of the perfect storm of um, the stock market crash happening There's elements in her family that was going on. Her father had died when she was young. Um, She grew up in poverty. So there was a lot of things coming together at the time she was meeting Clyde. Um, She was married and that marriage was not a healthy one. So when Clyde walked in, the way that I present it in the novel, which I speculate is what she could have been thinking, is that Clyde was the solution or a different life or a way out. So what's the one question, the burning question you would love to ask Bonnie? Oh, wow. That's a hard one. You know, I wonder if she, if there's a moment in time where she regrets and she could go back. I would assume there are, but she was also very, very passionate about Clyde. And I think some of that might've been this Um, mental disorder of sorts. There's actually something called the Bonnie and Clyde syndrome where women are attracted to dangerous men. And she was all in, I mean, till the very end. She was all in. You wrote another book about Bonnie, Side by Side. Tell us what kept you in the Bonnie and Clyde story. 
Well, when I first had this idea of telling Bonnie Parker's story, I figured it was going to be the crime spree and her point of view of that experience. And when I began writing, I start, I kept backing up and backing up and backing up. And then I backed up for an entire book. So <laughs> first there was Becoming Bonnie. And then um, that was a full story arc, evolution arc. And then she has another full arc in Side by Side, the second book. Outside of the crime sprees, what was their relationship like? I think based on all the anecdotes I read, based on the nonfiction accounts, everything, that they were very loving and that they saw each other as partners. And the way that I presented it in the novels is that they almost saved each other. Clyde lifted Bonnie up when she needed it and she lifted him up when he needed it. And they just clicked and went together and were very loyal to one another. Interesting. So what did your research look like for this? So much. Um, A lot of nonfiction accounts, family diaries, family anecdotes, FBI files, um, first person accounts of people who are in the Barrow gang, Blanche, who is Buck's wife and Buck is Clyde's brother. She has a memoir. Um, There's other memoirs of other people who were in the gangs. Just there was a wealth of information. Um, What was very interesting was that a lot of times the information almost clashed or opposed one another because you have these different perspectives. You have an eyewitness who wanted their 15 minutes of fame. So maybe they speculated or embellished. You have the police accounts and they wanted things to be seen a certain way. You even have people of the Barrow gang where it's been documented where Clyde tells them, if you are arrested, point the finger at me instead of yourself. So there's so many different perspectives that I had to pick whichever one I thought best aligned with my story. When I was doing research for this interview, I kept coming up on this video of the car after the shootout. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how time-wise, how close that was to the actual shootout, but it looks like it's pretty recent. I don't know specific timing, but I do think it happened relatively quickly afterward. The whole shootout was very orchestrated. They were in the brush right offside the highway waiting for Vining Clyde to come down. So it makes sense that it would be documented pretty quickly, especially since um, the the law had a very strong vendetta against Bonnie and Clyde and had publicly spoken about how they were going to take them down. Flipping the page, you have written books for younger readers, all featuring strong young women, including a nonfiction account about Bethany Hamilton, the young surfer who lost an arm in a shark attack. With all of your work focusing on these strong young women, do you consider that to be your brand? I do now, but I'll be honest that when I began writing, I didn't realize I was creating a brand. (laughs) We always get the advice to create a brand, and I think it happened so organically for me just because that was what I was interested in. And and yeah, and now it's turned into my brand. and And I spoke with a publicist once. And she was like, put that on your website, put on your website that you are a storyteller of women throughout history. And I was like, okay, done. (laughs) That's who I am. Anyone ever told you to like pick a lane and stay in it? No. And um, my agent and my publishers, they've all been wonderful about it. A lot of times when I get an idea, I don't particularly say, oh, this is going to be adult or this is going to be middle grade. I kind of just let the story dictate what it's going to be. 
And then I share it with my agent and my publishers. And um, I've been very fortunate that they've been receptive. I read both young adult and middle grade and my daughter is approaching middle grade. So it's fun for me to be able to read and write whatever idea sparks interest for me. What does your daughter think of these books? Oh, she's, she's wonderful. I just did a bunch of school visits for I Am Defiance. Mm -hmm. And um, when I visited her school, she actually did the presentation with me. She was the cutest thing and she had so much fun. Um, So much so that I did another grade at her school a couple days later and her teacher reached out to me and she was like, you know, if you want your daughter to do that one too, you know, she can, she did such a wonderful job. So she ended up doing a couple presentations with me. Um, and it was funny because the second time we did it together, she actually was like stepping on my words because she knew what I was going to say. And it was hilarious. She just took over and I was like, all right, go ahead, sweetie. <laughs> on you. <laughs> yep. In June, we'll get to read your newest book, A Betting Woman, about Eleanor Dumont, also known as Simone Jules, who ran a blackjack table and was later an owner of a gambling aquarium. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? I would love to. So this one's adult. Um, and like you said, she had various names. Uh, she was born as Simone Jules. She later reinvented herself as Eleanor Dumont. And then she eventually was giving a nickname of Madame Mustache. And I was so intrigued by the fact that this singular woman had three names. And I was so curious of why and how. And um, her story, even beyond that, was so compelling to me. She's this woman who is the reason why Blackjack exists in our country today. She went west. She ended up in the boomtown of San Francisco. She started dealing cards. Uh, She was a phenomenon. And she went from boomtown to boomtown and spread this game. And she built this world for herself in a world that was pretty much only for men at that time. And then she ended up getting the nickname of Madame Mustache. And at first I was insulted for her. I was like, how dare that? If you think about it, any nickname that you hear for a, for a man is generally related to his skill set or his accomplishments or even his personality of Ivan the Terrible, you know, but for a woman, it was about her appearance. And at first I was very upset by that. But then the more I learned about Eleanor Dumont, the more I was like, I wonder if she embraced that nickname and used it for her advantage to perpetuate her legacy. And then I was just dying to tell her story. Are you a gambler? I am not, um, not at all. Um, but it's been fun to learn about the different strategies of blackjack and there's some roulette in the book as well. So it was interesting to learn it, but I will, no, I'm going to stay away from the gambling table. I don't think I would do well. I don't have a mind for numbers and I think you need that when you're gambling. When you decide what you're going to write about, what happens next in terms of your planning and your research? I try to get as many details as possible. Just Details heaped on details on top of details. I'm a very visual person. And the more I can visualize as I'm writing and visualize for a reader, the, the better. I, I really want to bring it to life. Um, even the littlest of details. There's this moment in A Betting Woman where Eleanor is walking across this um, area where they're digging gold. And she has to kick aside sardine cans and empty bottles And those little details are so important to me to bring to life. So I spent a lot of time reading 
anecdotes and first person accounts and as many memoirs as I can get my hands on. Cause I feel like that's where you really get to experience the real world. You said a minute ago, when you started the last book, you weren't sure whether it was going to be adult or, or for our young readers. What point in writing did you decide? Once I understand my characters and what I want them to, to accomplish, then it becomes pretty clear what age group is going to be. Um, one of my next books for middle grade is about a young woman named Sybil Luddington. And she's 16 at the highest point of the story. But I actually wanted it to be a middle grade book because I felt that her evolution as a character, her journey as a character fit more with a middle grade point of view. So I really think the story and what the character wants to accomplish dictates what age group it falls into. So when you look at Eleanor Dumont, what was it that she needed to accomplish? Her whole story is about her legacy and wanting to leave a mark in the world. And then it's also something that transpires from the age of 20 until she's in her 40s. So it was a greater length of time. It was more of a saga than a moment in her life. With Sybil Luddington, so Sybil Luddington is a hero of the Revolutionary War. She's often called the female Paul Revere because she did a similar midnight ride. Uh, And that, like I said, happens when she's 16. But there's so much that came before that moment that I wanted to include that in the story. And I thought a lot of that was about relationships with her sister and finding who she was in her in her family environment and trying to figure out who she wants to be in life and if being a girl is going to limit that. And that just felt very middle grade to me. So her story actually begins when she's 12. I had a listener ask, is a historical novel founded on solid facts or is it simply inspired by history? Well, by definition, I'll start there. Historical fiction is any novel, so fiction set in the past. And a lot of people will say that it's 50 years, but there is some subjectivity there of how long in the past it really is. I think as much as possible, historical fiction authors like to base it on facts, but there's always times where the facts don't exist, where the facts don't align with the story and what you're trying to accomplish. And I think that's when it becomes more inspired by than based on. Um, I will say that I've had some readers, kind of angry readers, reach out to me and say that my books aren't historical fiction because they're not factual. And that's one of those moments where I kind of just have to let it go and try not to respond, well, what you're asking for is nonfiction. (laughs) Is it hard for you to make that call, fill in those facts that weren't there? It is. It's hard to make the call. And then it's also hard when I then choose to deviate knowing it's not factually correct, but knowing it's best for the story. For example, in Becoming Bonnie and Side by Side, one of the characters, Blanche, she is Clyde's brother's wife. And she her presence isn't fully there until they're during the crime spree. Mm-hmm. But Blanche as a character, her evolution in Side by Side wouldn't make sense without her also having an evolution in Becoming Bonnie. One sets up the other. So I created a little bit of a backstory for her in Side by Side so that readers can really see the growth that 
Blanche has and also her relationship with Bonnie. Her relationship with Bonnie and becoming Bonnie is night and day from side by side. So I thought it was necessary to bend the truth there and introduce Blanche to the gang a little earlier than historically accurate so the reader can get that more fulfilling experience. When you wrote Becoming Bonnie, did you plan to write the second book? Yeah. So when I began writing Becoming Bonnie, it really was just the Bonnie and Clyde story. And then I backed up, backed up, backed up, and then it became a different book. And then I just embraced it from there. How much liberty do you afford yourself when it comes to expanding a real person's emotions and personality traits? I really try to stick as close as possible. I, especially with someone like Bonnie, who a lot of people have strong feelings about and some people have strong connections to, I try to stay as close as possible. But of course, you have to guess. It's not as if I can ask her. So uh, I guess, but I really do make an earnest try at getting it as factual as I think it's it could it can get. Like in some ways, I could see how. Gosh, that's cool to be able to have that time frame, and you know, you've got the setting, you have all this stuff, but then you have such responsibility. And so, how do you weigh that? There are moments where I won't include something in the story unless I can justify it in some way. In becoming Bonnie, a lot of the story is spent in a speakeasy. And there was no way I was going to put Bonnie in one just because I wanted her to be in a speakeasy because that's where people went in the 1920s. Right. I spent a large amount of time just reading everything possible to see if Bonnie actually stepped foot in a speakeasy. And I found it. It was like finding gold. And I felt (laughs) like, okay, yes, now Bonnie and Clyde can visit a speakeasy because I found proof that they actually did. So I tried to at least have all of those moments possible. Um, There's a point in the story where Bonnie's mom has an illness and I researched and tried to find any existence of any type of illness. And I didn't find the exact one, but I did find some people say that there was a moment where her mom was sick for a while. And I was like, okay, that's justified. It's not exact, but it's justified. So you can run with it. Yeah. I think I need those moments before I do run with it. Not only do you have a book coming out in July, but one of your books for young readers comes out in November. Can you tell us a little bit about By the Light of Fireflies? Yeah. So By the Light of Fireflies is the one about Sybil Luddington, who is called the female Paul Revere. But um, I think she's a lot more than that little nickname. Um, So Sybil was actually half Paul Revere's age, she went twice as far and she did her ride completely by herself. So it was very remarkable. And I, there's a little bit of magical realism in the story as well with the inclusion of fireflies and this big legend that um, when you're in a time of need, fireflies will help you. So I love that. I love when there's a sprinkle of magic in stories. And this is the first one of mine where there is a little sprinkle of magic. So it was fun and it felt perfect for a middle grade novel. And one of those books that I would have loved to read when I was that age. How does that work when you're writing two books at the same time for different age groups? I usually won't work on them at the same time Mm -hmm. um, unless it's later stages and I'm doing edits pages yeah revisions like small stuff if I'm um, researching and writing I will focus solely on that and carve out the time just to work on that 
practice. How did your work as an advertising copy editor contribute to you becoming someone who writes novels? I mean, there's actually more of a connection than a lot of people realize. And I get this question a lot. Um, so as a copywriter, I would work from a creative brief that a client would give me, which is a lot like an outline or parameters for my publishers. Like, oh, we really like this, but can you make sure it fits in this mold or, you know, so it's similar in that way where I'm working within guidelines almost. And um, as a copywriter, I would research and I would end up with a slew of information. And then my job was to parse it down into a headline or a brochure or a website. And so I had to take a lot of information and put it in order and make sure it was um, digestible and made sense. Um, Even something like a brochure, as you're flipping through the pages, it's telling a story. So it was a pretty logical next step. Um, And I really do think copywriting prepared me for being an author. So I'm at the point now where I have stuff going in middle grade and in adult and I'm having so much fun and I'm busy and I just, I love it. I'm living the dream right now, but it took a long, long, long time to get here. A lot of false starts, a lot of times where I thought I was just going to stop. Um, but I got pulled back in because we do it because we love it. Right. Yes. Uh, But my first real moment where things started to gain momentum was when my daughter was five months old. It's funny how we think of things in relation to how how old our kids were. Five months old, that's when I got my first agent and things started to slowly progress. Um, I think that was 2013. Prior to that, I was in Pitch Wars. And I know a lot of authors start there or gain momentum there. And it was a wonderful experience. Um, I was a mentee at first and I later was a mentor. Um, so I went through Pitch Wars. It was wonderful. And then from there, I just kind of kept pushing and fighting my way to, to a publication. In your view, what is good writing? That's a good question. So when I am reading, if I can get lost in a story, then I'm happy. And I think for me, it comes down to rhythm and cadence and almost your eyes just propelling themselves forward without you even realizing because it's just done so naturally and smoothly. Um, Even in my own writing, a lot of times I'll read something out loud for the cadence and there would be a word that is like two syllables. And I'm like, ooh, this sentence would sound better if it's three syllables. And then I'll go plug in a new word that is three syllables. I just... Rhythm and cadence is so important to me as a reader and a writer. How have your relationships with other authors affected your career? Oh, man, I would be lost without my author friends. There's so many times where you're doubting yourself. You have imposter syndrome. and You need someone to tell you, no, like, you're okay, keep going. (laughs) And then there's also just that need to celebrate with people in the industry my husband is wonderful. My family is wonderful. Um, but they don't fully get the industry. Our publishing industry is difficult. There's a lot of emotions attached to it. And you just need your author girlfriends to be there for you. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. That was one of the reasons I did this podcast. I want, wanted people to feel like they, if they don't have a tribe, maybe they will now. <laughs> oh, I love that. What's the best writing advice you've received? To read. Just read everything. Uh, there's so many times where I get inspired 
by other authors, just, I'm like, wow, like that paragraph was so well done. And I want to emulate something similar. I actually hear a lot of people say that they won't read in the time period or the genre that they're writing in, but I feel like I actually gravitate toward it because it's so helpful to me when I'm reading something um, set during second world war or something. And it's a tidbit of information. I was like, Oh, I didn't come across that yet. And then I'll make a note and then I'll go research it. And then maybe it adds an element to my story. Maybe it doesn't. So I'm so inspired by reading other authors and their books. You think that when you're writing, you need to stay in your little writing bubble, but then sometimes when you take a break and read, but it makes you think a little differently. Don't you agree? Oh, 100%. Whatever you're writing, you just kind of want to tweak a little bit. Yeah, every time I read a rom-com, I'm convinced I need to write one because (laughs) I enjoy them. I haven't written one yet, but every time I'm like, oh yeah, that's what I'm doing next. Jenny, thank you so much for spending some time with us. And we look forward to reading A Betting Woman in July. And then you have By the Light of Fireflies in November. So we have a lot to look forward to. Thank you. It was so wonderful to chat with you. To learn more, go to JennyLWalsh.com. Music by Pavel Yudin and photography by Casey Meineke. If you like what you're hearing, hit the subscribe button and consider leaving a review.